0: And so the point is, Buffett trusted him and he trusted that he knew the deal. And that's a lot of what I think we need to do, you know, I mean, let's be honest, a great operator can make a mediocre deal go well, but a terrible operator can ruin any deal.
1: Hi, welcome to Ready to Scale Season 3. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. I'm a real estate investor, syndicator, and operator of multifamily properties. And in this season, we're going to focus on dialogues that drive success. Building real wealth is not a fairy tale nor rocket science, but there's so much to learn. So grab a cup of coffee and join me each week for in depth conversations with successful real estate investors. Conversations that are designed to help you drive your wealth, investment knowledge, and lifestyle to the next level. And of course, you can always go to my website, elliperlman.com, to read more about investing passively in multifamily. everyone, welcome to another episode of Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman, broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Today, I'm going to have on the show Paul Moore. And I had Paul on the show, I think it was maybe a year or a year and a half ago when I was still in California. So check out the previous episode with Paul. But for those of you who didn't listen to that episode, just a little reminder that Paul is the founder and managing director at Wellings Capital. He's an author. He's also a Fox business contributor. And his podcast is called How to Lose Money. I was on that podcast. It was a really fun podcast. And Paul also wrote two books, The Perfect Investment. And the second one is Storing Up Profits. So without further ado, I want to welcome Paul to the show. Hey, Paul.
0: Ellie, it's great to see you again. How's it going?
1: All is well. Always good to chat with you. Paul and I, you know, we i forget how we met, but we were on each other's podcasts and we were also referring some investors to one another. So I think we share a lot of things being conservative and, you know, putting investors, you know, in the front, the most important thing in the business. We share a lot of, you know, that mindset and focus. So, just as a reminder, if you don't mind telling us a little bit about what you do today and how you got started in real estate.
0: Yeah. So I sold my company to a publicly traded firm in 97, bantered around, lost money for a couple of years doing different things. And then in 2000, started investing in real estate. I flipped houses. Then I flipped waterfront lots. Then I built houses. Big mistake. And then I did a <laughs> subdivision or two helped with a Hyatt Hotel along the way. But I was trying to figure out how to get involved in commercial real estate. And I didn't really know how, but we stumbled into it when we built two multifamily properties in the oil rush country of North Dakota in 2011 and 12. And we operated those for a number of years. I ended up writing a book called, as you said, The Perfect Investment About Multifamily. And I promised my dear wife I was not going to jump around anymore. I was going to stay involved in multifamily, but Ellie, I've had a real hard time. I guess we're not I guess we're not as well equipped as you in the acquisition strategy arena because we have not been able to find deals that made sense. And so we finally expanded into self-storage and mobile home parks. Now I have a couple funds that allow people to have diversified investments across those two asset types. We're still loving multifamily if we could find the right price.
1: Yeah, I hear you. It's really crazy what's been happening. The market was kind of frozen. Well, before COVID, the market was extremely competitive and it got hotter and hotter. Then we went from one extreme to the other and March, probably until... July or August, the market was was frozen. The most sales were kind of on hold. The fewer assets that I saw out there were really struggling deals and because we didn't know how well multifamily is gonna do as an asset class, it was really hard to underwrite. What do you underwrite it to 10% vacancy to 50? We were waiting to see what's gonna happen. So it was an extremely interesting period and slowly deals came back and we had, you know, some more time to look and say, okay, this is what's been happening in the past six, nine, ten months since COVID started. So at least we have some data we can work with. But at first it was really, you know, challenging and you're always out of two minds to say, okay, maybe that's my opportunity to shine and take a risk and buy when nobody is buying. But if it was, my money 100% that's a different strategy you have investors money you can't take the risks that you want to take when you're you know you have to act very responsibly and have a fiduciary responsibility and that's kind of the challenge
0: howard marks in his great book mastering the market cycle talks about catching a falling knife and how hmm dangerous that is. But if it works, it can be incredibly profitable. But honestly, you know, I'm with you. Now, we were investing in self-storage and mobile home parks during that time and it went really, really well. But let's be honest, Mm -hmm. you know, eviction moratoriums and things could have gone differently. You know, the money printing by the U.S. government and stuff could have gone differently. I mean, Ellie, you know, you've been around the world, and you know, this, there is a lot of pain yes. in Africa and Central and South America, all over the world. There's massive pain from COVID that Americans barely even know about. And, you know, if that comes our way, it's going to be a very different story. But so far, we've been very blessed to not have the pain that they have gone through and that they're going through today.
1: Yeah, that's 100% correct. And, I also see even within the U.S. that is doing pretty well relative, right? We still have higher you know, unemployment than we had before COVID. Even within the U.S., I see differences between different sub-markets and it really comes down to how supportive the counties are in real estate owners. We have... You know, on some assets, we're working with the counties, we're getting checks for delinquent rent from the counties directly, and they're allowing eviction and we choose, you know, whether to go with it. Other counties, you can't do anything. So it's really interesting to see how some areas are more supportive and some areas are still kind of paralyzed and you can't really get much help, you know, on the local level.
0: Yeah, it's very true. And it's sort of like some of these countries, you know, like I I heard from my friend the other day who does medical relief work in Africa, Tanzania versus neighboring, I think one of the neighbors is Sudan versus Ethiopia, Mm. totally different responses. And they're seeing, you know, very different results in the way they're handling things. But Anyway, I got to tell you, I'm really glad to be in recession-resistant asset types like multifamily, yep. self-storage, mobile home parks. That's not recession-proof, but recession-resistant so far.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I understand that you find more opportunities in self-storage in mobile home parks than you are in multifamily. It's interesting that self-storage didn't become so competitive as multifamily. Can you think of any reason for that?
0: I've got a couple thoughts. I don't know if this is more the cause or the outcome, so maybe we can banter that about a little bit here. But so I heard and I've read that 93% of multifamily assets above 80 units are owned by companies that have typically wrung the value add opportunities out of those. And so when they're selling, they're not often selling to a small operator. They're often selling to someone larger than them. Well, if that's true, that means only 7% are owned by mom and pop or small or one off operators. And even those have often already had the value add work done. Now, self storage has 53,000 facilities nationwide. That includes, that's about Mm -hmm. the same number of assets as Subway, McDonald's, and Starbucks combined. But I believe 76%. Are run by independent operators or mom and pops. And if you would guess that two-thirds of that 76%, and that's the number I have, is run by really small mom and pop operators. Ellie, Mm -hmm. they don't have the resources, the knowledge, or even the desire to increase income and maximize value. And here's one of the reasons cap rates have gone from 10 to 12% down to let's say five or six or seven percent in self-storage. As a result, they've been able to be mediocre and still have massive massive profits at least on paper. Yeah. And so if they sell for double what they would have sold for 8 or 10 years ago, they probably don't have the desire to leave the beach and come back and really improve their asset. Now a great operator like some of the ones we, you know, invest with and you know, a great operator can take that asset and significantly increase the income and the value. And everything I just said is true for mobile home parks as well, which I consider the other multifamily.
1: Interesting. I think with mobile home parks, there are more larger players that own them. I think Sam Zell also is, you know, a big owner. It's closer to multifamily and to many investors, when you say mobile home parks, they think trailer parks, and it's not necessarily the case. There's some nice mobile home parks that don't look that much different than multifamily. So just interesting kind of the concept, maybe that's also what drives investors not away from mobile home parks, but it's not their primary focus. It's it's mainly, you know, multifamily or used to be office and, and retail. So it's less crowded in mobile home parks which allows you to actually get a deal, it's much easier.
0: Yeah, what a lot of people don't know, Ellie, is that even though Sam Zell, arguably the most successful real estate investor in America, has 157,000 mobile home park pads, last I checked, even though that's true, the large institutionals like Sam Zell, Blackstone, others Mm -hmm. only own about 10 maybe up to 15% of the market leaving 85% wow. or more in the hands of mom and pop owners and if you can acquire i mean we invested in a deal last year in Louisville for 7.1 million dollars the owner had not been even to the state of Kentucky for years and years anyway acquired it for 7.1 million which was incredible gift to the owner Who felt like I I never dreamed I could get that much. And then our operating partner sold it 10 months later for 15 million with 50% debt and 50% equity. We're talking about more than tripling the equity in about a year.
1: Wow. I think I have a better understanding of the potential there because it's, you know, I I know multifamily. I'm not really looking into self storage or mobile home parks. That's really interesting. And I want to kind of, shift the conversation a bit and talk about funds because you know this is I know you're you've been doing you know many funds and running them your funds are usually semi-blind funds but do you mind talking a little bit about the difference between a blind fund and semi-blind fund and other major you know kind of a dominant types of funds that are out there and which one you you chose I'm actually really interested in understanding that.
0: Yeah. So I would personally define it this way, though there may be other people who have different, more technical definitions. I would say Mm -hmm. a blind fund would be somebody who, let's say like Sam Zell, who has such a phenomenal reputation, has so much of their own money in the game that they say, look, just give me your money and I'll do the best thing I can with it. And people trust them after, you know, they've been doing it well for decades And then I guess a semi-blind would be, we're going to only buy these type of asset classes with this rate of return, with this type of debt. And then a completely non-blind fund, I guess, would be where you say, okay, here are the seven assets I'm going to buy, no more, no less. Mm -hmm. And we chose the middle option. You know, Basically, we've been able to build up trust with investors because we say, look, here's what we're going to do, and this is what we've been doing. So that's the option we went with. How about you? What do you think's best?
1: I do like the semi-blind fund, which basically tells investors, you know, these are the type of assets we're looking for. And, you know, here's a range of cash on cash and IRR that if the deal underwrites to these, you know, ranges, this is what we're going to purchase. And I know that, you know, right now there's so much capital looking for deals that investors are actually looking for funds more than in the past. And so I think I definitely like the semi-blind fund. I think it gives you some flexibility rather than just say, we're going to purchase, you know, this asset or another asset. And it gives you the, also the advantage to win deals because the money is already there. So I can tell I'm selling two assets right now, and it's definitely comforting as a seller when I'm interviewing buyers to know, okay, this buyer already has the money and he's ready to go or she's ready to go. There's not a huge chance that they're actually not going to be able to close because of lack of funding, which is always a concern when you're selling an asset.
0: Right. That's true. I'm curious, are you putting a lot of dry powder together before you're moving on something or are you only raising the money incrementally as you need it when you have your fund open?
1: So until now, I was actually only accepting funds when I had a deal under contract. Now with the new fund that we're working on, we're actually raising the money and, you know, there's some return until we get the first deal. So we're not going to do capital calls. And I know some funds have a capital call structure versus an immediate, you know, payment. So we prefer to get the funds there and not to get just a soft commitment and then to do a capital call and go back to everyone and say, okay, now we've identified an asset, you know, why don't you wire the funds? Because I think it's it gets a little bit, you know, messy and I want to really focus my time on, okay. It's interesting to you. You wire the funds and let us do what we do best. And it's basically find the best deals out there and then focus on operations. I find it to be just the the best way. And we went back and forth trying to decide which way is best. Maybe with an evergreen fund or open-ended fund that there, you know, it's, it's a fund that that lives forever until the sponsor decides to close it. Maybe a capital call is the right way to do but i prefer to get the funds to get the money in there so we can move quickly so we're in a better position to win the best deals in the market
0: right that's great we invested in a deal last or 2 years ago where the cash was on hand and these five kids were fighting their parents had both passed away in a self storage facility they wanted 5 million that was unrealistic but they took 2.4 million cash quick closing And our operating partner was able to sell that just a year and a half later for $4.6 So, I mean, having that cash was critical.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I guess you have that perspective when you're actually trying to win deals and and seeing, okay, what's going to give me the best, you know, advantage. Do you see any challenges or red flags? You know, if, if an investor is looking to, invest with a sponsor like yourself, Paul, or, you know, a different sponsor, and they have the opportunity to invest in a fund. What are kind of some red flags or things that they need to be aware of?
0: Yeah, there's quite a few disadvantages. And we try to hit those up front with our investors. Number one, they might be paying two levels of fees. And they may not because it's possible that as an asset manager, either I might not charge you know, extra fees or I might get a discount from the operator that I pass mm-hmm. on or a better split with the operator that I pass on to offset the fees. Another thing would be how much due diligence is the uh, fund manager doing on these assets? How much skin do they have in the game at the operating level and at the fund level? How much you know, risk are they taking? What happens if things go wrong? What will the operator do? And what will the fund manager do? One question I like to think about is this, do I like this person, know this person, and trust this person enough to be in trouble with them for a decade? Mm. Now, nobody plans to get in trouble with things, but let's be honest, Ellie, things don't go right. Some things in this world don't go as it planned. So the question is, would I really trust this person if things went south? to guide us out of this. And so those are some of the questions I would be asking.
1: Yeah, I think they're all very very valid questions, also very relevant to a deal specific, you know, investment, but even more so on, you know, when it comes to a fund because You're not going to have, as an investor, your money is more diversified. So your $250,000 are getting you equity in five, seven, or 10 deals. So you get that protection of diversification, but you're not going to make a decision on an asset by asset basis. So you mentioned is even more important because you really got to trust the operator, the sponsor, and feel comfortable, you know, investing your money with them.
0: Yeah. I remember I'm writing a book about Warren Buffett's rules or applications to real estate investing. And one story was he believed that the certain guy was the best CEO in America. He was the CEO of Crystal Cities. The Crystal Cities guy, Tom Murphy, he calls Buffett one day, according to what I heard.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: in a 15 minute call, he convinces Buffett not only that he should buy ABC, but that Buffett should put in a whole bunch of money, hundreds of millions of dollars. And this was back in late 70s when that was a lot more money for Buffett. And so in 15 minutes with no more due diligence than that and not even a handshake, Buffett agreed to you know, fund a lot of this. And Buffett made billions as did Tom Murphy from this acquisition of ABC by this little unknown company. And so the point is Buffett trusted him And he trusted that he knew the deal. And that's a lot of what I think we need to do, you know? I mean, let's be honest, a great operator can make a mediocre deal go well, but a terrible operator can ruin any deal.
1: Absolutely. That's absolutely true. And I've seen it over and over. I can tell you as a sponsor, you see, you deal with different partners, you see things, you hear stories. They don't always you know, get published or, you know, they're not always seen the day of light and passive investors are not exposed to them. So you're absolutely right. 100%. What makes you excited about 2021? I know it's, you know, it's April now, so we're kind of gone less than half the way, but what, what excites you about this year?
0: Yeah. So I think there's still a lot of unknown and you know about what's going to happen with covid and the vaccines and i just saw a headline today that they were stopping the vaccine at least one of them in the state of virginia Yeah. and so there's still a lot of unknown out there about eviction moratoriums and all that what excites me this year is the same as last year and that is buying assets or investing in assets i should say with intrinsic value that greatly exceeds the extrinsic value or the price This is kind of a crazy little story, but what brought it home for me is Michelangelo. He had a quote, you know, this great sculptor. He said that he could see in a certain block of marble. He could see the sculpture. He said it was already in the marble. All he had to do is chip away all the extra stuff. And I thought that was silly. And I thought he was just being cute. But I realized, you know, there's a lot of truth in that. You know, it's not only value-add investing that we want to do as operators. We actually want to be intrinsic value extractors. I just kind of made that up. but
1: It sounds good.
0: Good, right? (laughs) We want to extract the true value that's there. And so here's a super quick, simple example. If I buy a self-storage facility for a million bucks and I add U-Haul and it happens to be in a fabulous location where U-Haul is needed and I can add $4,000 a month to the NOI that's $48,000 a year, divide $48,000 a year by a 6% cap rate, and I just added something like six or $800,000 to the value of that property. Well, if I only had half a million equity and half a million debt in that, I more than doubled the value of the equity just by signing a contract with U-Haul. That is what I'm talking about. There's intrinsic value there that the former operator didn't even know he had access to. And now he or she that bought it can explode that value and hand it to the investors. And nobody gets hurt.
1: Yeah. And that's the beauty in buying an asset from an operator that is not a strong operator. You know, some things are so clear to you, but they never thought about it. They were not exposed It's Because like you said, some of them are spending time at the beach or, you know, out of state. I love those value ideas. I love to buy assets from operators who, for instance, try to manage the asset themselves without going through a professional company that can manage it. You buy the asset, you're getting first day, you just raise rents $100. And we've done it in the past. And, you know, no pushback because the rents were under market and they thought they were saving money by managing themselves. But... I actually left a lot of money on the table. These are the best deals, the best deals. We're great. Well, we've arrived to the lightning round questions. Are you ready, Paul?
0: I don't know. I'm scared. (laughs)
1: Let's see. So what's your favorite hobby besides buying great deals?
0: I was on the Bigger Pockets podcast about three years ago and they asked me that. And mm-hmm. I think I was a deer in the headlights because I, I actually love writing, but writing's mm. part of work. And so, with all the crazy stuff that happened last year with COVID and the national political scene and everything else, I decided I am going to have some fun this year. So, I bought a dirt bike and I also mm. bought a four wheeler. And my son and I are going to do a lot of four wheeling trails and stuff like that this year. We've already done some and we're having a great time.
1: Wow, that sounds amazing. What's the one thing that people don't really know about you and you feel comfortable sharing?
0: Yeah, so I was the Dayton, Ohio Golden Gloves boxing champ in 1981. That's the good news. That's impressive, huh? Yeah. The joke behind that, that my family and friends know, is that I was actually unopposed in my weight class. So I just got the trophy to prove, you know, that I did nothing.
1: (laughs) All right. So Paul, what do you wish that you had known when you just started investing in real estate?
0: I wish I would have known the difference between investing and speculating. You know, when I first Mm. got into it, I speculated a lot and I basically you know, play double or nothing with a whole lot of my capital. And when I landed on nothing, what did I have left to double?
1: Mm. Very interesting. Yeah, it takes some times, I think, to understand that difference, that there's some hard data that you can rely on and, you know, perform and looking at where the market is going. Absolutely. So, Question number four, what's your number one advice to high net worth individuals and family offices that want to scale and grow their real estate portfolios in 2021?
0: You know, I would say rely on experts. You know, when I had a kidney stone, I went to the doctor and the doctor said, don't worry, we have more medicine than you have pain. Well, (laughs) I couldn't get that on my own. I had to go to the doctor to get it. And I would recommend that people like doctors and attorneys and tech people say, "Okay, look, I would rather enjoy my life and I would rather trust a professional. Now I would actually say, look, spend the time. I mean, Ellie, you and I both know Brian Burke and Brian wrote a Mm -hmm. book called The Hands Off Investor. Take the time to go through that book and really, really spend the time up front to find the right sponsor. But when people when you find the right sponsor, you can often make so much more money, even if you're sharing it with them with so little effort. Like one of my investors said, why am I working harder than I need to to make less than I could? And so I recommend that people invest with people like you who are doing it right. And then they can just sit back and collect their checks and trust you to manage the risk and the return.
1: Absolutely. All right. Last question, Paul, where can people find you? And I know you've mentioned before we started recording about an online book or an ebook that you've published.
0: I have a course that allows people to dip their toes into investing in commercial real estate and specifically self-storage mobile home parks. And they can get that at wellingscapital.com slash resources. So that's W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S capital.com forward slash resources
1: all right paul as always great to have you on the show great you know connecting with you thank you so much for your time today
0: hey it's been an honor to be here again thanks ellie
1: all right and to you guys i hope that that was an interesting discussion for you to kind of listen to be bold be great keep moving forward and i'll see you on the next episode